This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Serious. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. High Theory Podcast is a proud member of the Humanities Podcast Network. It therefore gives us great pleasure to invite you to the 2022 Humanities Podcast Network Symposium on podcasting as knowledge sharing and creation. Like last year, we will have three days of conversations on all things podcast from October 20th to 22nd. Please visit the network website at humanitiespodnetwork.org. That's humanitiespodnetwork.org to find more details and for the link to register for this free and virtual event. What follows is an edited version of the live recording of an event we held to launch On Not Knowing. How to Love and Other Essays by Emily Ogden, published with the University of Chicago Press in 2022. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. And I want to thank especially Emily for taking time out of her summer to talk to us at High Theory Podcast. Thank you so much, Emily. My name is Sharonik Boshu. I am a hopefully final year doctoral candidate at the NYU English Department. And with my friend, Kim Adams, who's also here, I run the High Theory Podcast, where we ask simple questions about difficult ideas from the Academy in tiny episodes. Today, we're talking with Emily Ogden, who is Associate Professor of English at the University of Virginia, and previously the author of Credulity, A Cultural History of U.S. Mesmerism, published by the University of Chicago Press, And the book we are talking about today is brand new, also from the University of Chicago Press, a book of wondrous and insightful essays titled On Not Knowing How to Love and Other Essays. So the format for today is very simple. I'm going to ask Emily a couple of questions and we will break the flow of questions with a brief reading in the middle, followed by a few questions. And at the end of which we will open the floor to the audience. And as you can already see, it's the event is being recorded. So this will be made into an episode of the podcast, but the Q&A portion with the audience will not be part of the recording. So that's not something that you have to worry about. Let's begin at the very beginning. 
what was the first inkling that you had that this book was imminent? What could you feel? What could you sense that this book was coming? And to put it very bluntly, what is not knowing to you? So that's a great question. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the chance to be here. The first form that the book took was a set of columns on the website Three Quarks Daily. It was a pretty long time ago that I wrote those, and I feel a bit distant from them now, but they were meant to be essays sort of on a theme that would um, be um, each essay about a different form of not knowing. So innocence, surprise, um, irony, which is a bit of a stretch as a form of not knowing, but in any case, there was a, a, a sort of productive gimmick for me of one essay on each topic of not knowing per column, which I did every eight weeks. And then gradually I started to feel like there was a bit of a um, performative contradiction in doing it that way because I would set out the topic of the essay as like a kind of not knowing that I knew about. I mean, it was, they were essays that were almost too definitional. And so I, um, I, I changed the form a lot when I started to write the book as it now is. I started including the personal for reasons that um, we could talk about if you'd like. Um, and that mostly had to do with making it a kind of situated as opposed to objective knowledge so that my position was identifiable. Um, and that's when the definition of on not knowing that I would want to stand by now came to the fore, which is basically from psychoanalysis. And it's the, the idea which you could get from a couple different strains of psychoanalysis, maybe the um, most prominent being um, D.W. Winnicott's, that uh, there's a temptation to knowingness, that it's actually pleasing and a relief in a lot of ways to be the one who knows, to be the one who has a theory. And that in love as in analysis, which are of course always twinned scenes, it's important to hold that back. You know, if even if you have, for example, as an analyst, a theoretical account of what's going on, you shouldn't say what that account is. You need to let the patient come to it or as a mother um, in Winnicott's terminology or really just as a caretaker of a child if you know what the play is about, you shouldn't say, you know, you should be willing to play the fool. So that was what I, what I began writing about in the book was um, knowingness as an obstacle to love and knowingness as a temptation that we might want to sort of practice resisting. So, so in a sense, the opposite of not knowing isn't knowing, it's knowingness. You know, we are a podcast called High Theory. And when we started the podcast, we, this is something that's wonderful that coming out of what you just said, because we didn't even consider that what is the opposite of theory making. And, you know, the, the kind of the, I guess you said, you know, the, the temptation of knowingness, also I guess epistemological hubris in a certain way to kind of even believe that the, the world or what we apprehend can be theorized. So, um, you know, your, um, I don't want to <clears throat> preempt our um, audience's reading of the book, but, um, you know, if you have produced the um, table of contents, you will see that this, it's, a, um, it's a list of essays that begin with the phrase, how to. And so if you take, you know, that together with um, the title of the essays, it's on not knowing how to X. Um, and so it's, it's a beautiful, I think, you know, kind of even... Um, kind of phrasal connection that the table of contents make with, with the title. Um, the University of Chicago Press website describes this book, I, what I thought really interesting as a suite, um, S-U-I-T-E, 
And um, so, and I was thinking about this word, whether in domestic architecture or in music, the impression that we get from the word suite is of a sum that connotes differently than any individual part. And so, you know, keeping that in mind, Emily, how would you say that your essays relate to each other? Um, how do they come together if they do? Yeah, no, that's that's great. That really um, that that really says something to me about why they might have chosen that word that I never thought about before. Because in fact, I didn't choose that particular word. And you know, if, as you might know, if you have written a book for a university press, you write all your own promotional material to a certain extent. But that one didn't come from me. And um, and I like the connection you make to a suite of rooms, um, which. Um, is a metaphor I use quite a few times in the book. I used even more in earlier drafts for what it means to have an essay offer a kind of holding environment to go back to Winnicott. You know, Winnicott's notion of what you're doing when you're not knowing is that, as an analyst is that you're holding space for the other person. Um, and I'm influenced in the way I think about this by David Russell's great book, Tact, which if you haven't encountered is really, really wonderful um, account of Winnicott and some of his, his um, his fellow thinkers and his milieu. Anyway, Winnicott thinks you're holding space. And, and I think that essays do that uh, really well as a genre. And that one of the things that I look for in essay writers that I like is for them to hold a room open and kind of hold, hold a place that I can go back to and have a certain kind of thought or maybe a certain kind of affect. So in that sense, I like the idea of thinking about the essays as a suite of rooms that you could travel through in different ways but they're always spatially related to each other. They weren't um, composed in the order that they appear. Um, and in some cases I intentionally separated essays that form a cluster to some extent. So there's some that form a cluster in that they fit together you know, theoretically, some form a cluster in that they fit together because they have the same metaphor that they depend on. And I, to some extent, tried to put some together that fit in those ways, but in other senses, I tried to separate. So like the book of Revelation appears at the beginning, middle and end. Scenes of drowning appear at the beginning, middle and end. Um, and so, in, so, so they're meant to be sort of navigable in different ways, something like a suite of rooms might be. Although my favorite way of navigating them is from beginning to end. There were other ways I thought about organizing them. Yeah, I mean, I read them in order. Although, I mean, again, you, I'm really quite struck by what you began with is the, the you know, the temptation to know. There's also a temptation to order, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, uh, however might uh, I try, at least, you know, I, I, I find it really difficult to do things out of order, whether it's binging TV shows or reading a book. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, I do think there's there's a lot of, um, you know, in the book, there's a lot of value in going from beginning to end. There's a particular kind of uh, rhythm to that particular reading. Um, okay, so speaking of the rhythms of reading, can I ask you to read uh, briefly from On Not Knowing? Absolutely. I do want to just quickly respond, if you don't mind, I can't resist yes, your notion of a temptation to order, because I think that's absolutely right. And that's part of what the temptation of theory is. And, and I'm not against theory by any means. I, you know, I'm speaking of temptations that I strongly feel. But, you know, the temptation to know is also a temptation to make durable sense of the world. And that's good in a lot of ways, maybe mostly good, but it can it can sometimes trap one in, in, in sort of relays. So that's very perceptive and really right. Um, so what I was hoping to read, if, um, if you'll all indulge me, is the very beginning of the book, 
the first chapter, which is called How to Catch a Minnow. And um, uh, Sharonic was rightly saying that the, the chapters are always sort of both to be read by themselves, How to Catch a Minnow, and with the book title on not knowing how to catch a minnow. And if I, if I can, I'll read the two epigraphs of the book first because they come up in the couple of pages I'm gonna read. The first is from Herman Melville's Moby Dick, unfitness to pursue our research in the unfathomable waters. And the second is from Elizabeth Hardwick's uh, Sleepless Nights, looking for the fossilized for something, persons and places thick and encrusted with final shape. Instead, there are many, many minnows, wildly swimming, trembling, vigilant to escape the net. How to catch a minnow. The world burns, yet the fire is not bright enough to read a map by, nor am I mostly reading. I am still sweeping the dirt out of the corners and intercepting my children's arms halfway through the act of smashing a glass on the stone ground. I am still trying to use fruit before it rots. The light flickers. Revelation is no common thing. When it comes, it rarely lasts. It is not necessarily present at the end of the world. How to love, what to do in the dim times. These are the questions of on not knowing. From the book of Revelation in the Bible, most people remember the apocalyptic prophecy, but the book begins with ordinary failures. A sword-mouthed being dictates John the Revelator's letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. The angel scolds Pergamum for worshiping false idols. He tells Sardis, wake up. In the letter to Ephesus, he complains, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Before the end of the world, even while the world is ending, the book of Revelation concerns itself with dailiness, as though there were a close relationship between the lightning strike and the dimness into which it subsides. The world has mundanity, duration, bullshit. Many nonsense tasks must be completed. False spirits must be tried and rejected. Long periods pass in which nothing illuminating happens. Write to Sardis and tell them it can never add up. Write to Pergamum and tell them you still have to hold your children, fetch them tissues and find boxes for their caterpillars. Leviathan threatens. Mostly I see minnows. Looking for the fossilized, for something, persons and places thick and encrusted with final shape, writes Elizabeth Hardwick. Instead, there are many, many minnows, wildly swimming, trembling, vigilant to escape the net. A person can want a clear view and not get it. A person can believe decisive action is required and yet not know how to begin. I would apart were it not like lead, but my whole clocks run down. My heart, the all-controlling weight, I have no key to lift again. So says Starbuck, the first mate of the Pequod in Moby Dick, overmatched by the tyranny of Ahab. Unfitness to pursue our research in the unfathomable waters, unfitness to act, too. To see the encrusted form might be best, but to attend to the minnows as they present themselves is better than to feign a monumental vision and then live by it. In this book, I try to resist the temptation to turn away from things as I find them. Blurry, quicksilver, unhandsome. At the edge of a midsummer river, a handful of minnows hangs in the bright brown light. Their silver noses point toward the branch that shelters them from the current. They hover with the busy motionlessness of bees. 
Minnows call the hand. Without decision, my arm darts out. The fish sense my intention propagating itself toward them. They have lateral line organs that permit them to feel as a kind of matrix the motions of others in the water. They are gone so fast, it's as if their leaving caused my fingers to touch the river and not the other way around. It is troublesome enough to catch a single minnow in the stream. Now imagine a whole school of herring radiating silver from every point. Massive schools may improve the odds of survival for any individual fish, although it is not clear why. It might be the case that marine predators struggle to focalize upon a single fish among many. It is not that they're bad at focusing, but, but that they're too good at it. Their targeting capacity is too easily triggered. The impulse to fix every fish in their sights prevents them from sighting a single one completely. They start to fix their eyes on one before they've even begun. They get distracted by another one and try to focus on it instead. The process is never complete. A human being, also a predator, will find it impossible to keep an eye on one starling in a flock of thousands. Conceptual efforts stumble in the face of the world's vast calamitous tides. Nonetheless, it's human beings who in the aggregate have set those tides on foot. No act, no failure to act, no use or squandering of resources that does not mark me as the author of another's destruction. Orca-like, I can't focus. Minnow-like, I respond unthinkingly to the fact of others turning. In the execution of my acts, I entail action on others in my turn. As difficult as it is for me to think one thought amid a proliferation of thoughts, I would appear to be at the same time effortlessly prolific in my complicity. My school has destroyed a planet. Unknowing is there on every side of the predicament. Unknowing is there in the terminal flight into frozen innocence with which some of us try to protect ourselves from knowledge of our culpability. Unknowing is there too in the certainty one may feel uncertainty one may feel when confronted with the problem of how to repair to the damage. And unknowing will still be there if one finds a way to live that one can live with. For the few fish captured, many more will escape the net. If there is a kind of unknowing that would serve now, it is not the defensiveness of willful ignorance, but the defensive fencelessness of not knowing yet. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emily. Once again, I'm struck by the way in which perspective is scoped in what you write and how, you know, even though, and this is, this is not my next question, but the one after that, uh, but even though, you know, you live with um, the strong personal voice, it's still kind of refracted through so many. And, you know, I'm kind of bound to imagine the, the image of light reflected on a stream with minnows. Um, Okay, so you know, in this, and this is not from the part that you read, but later on in this essay, um, you um, you say that speaking of the experiences, and you know, you're, you're talking about experiences that that constitute this book, and you say, I quote, I want to look at these trembling things, and not only at the monumentalities that um, solicit my attention. Um, so you know, we talked about scale, uh, we talked about order, and my next question is about scale. How do you scale what to look for in this book? And, you know, going back to your first question, when we are burdened by history, how should we look at ephemeral things? Yeah, those are really good questions, and they they have to do with um, 
why I ended up writing in the first person or the particular kind of first person voice that I use. Um, the book was sort of written in a, first of all, I started it before the pandemic, but wrote it through the pandemic. And so it was written in a moment of a kind of surreal, um, you know, in my personal experience of the pandemic, which was very light compared to, to summer even most, this strange confluence of, you know, uh, an increase in the political urgency that I felt daily and a, and a massive decrease in the ability that I had to deal with any of it. In my case, mostly because childcare just disappeared. And so I had to do that as well as my job. And so I felt all the time um, what I think has long been true, which is that I just didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> there was no defense for my life. Like what in the world was I doing taking care of um, these daily little labors while the world was collapsing all around me. And I, I wanted to do justice both to the fact that it, it would be on some level monstrous to not take care of those who completely depended on me. And also that there was no defense for it on those grounds. You know, it, but it, there was this sort of, um, this sort of unanswerable um, um, critique of my my ordinary life. And so that's what I what I wanted to do um, in looking at small daily experiences was be honest about what was really happening in my daily life and not try to occupy, um, but you know, we've talked about theory and order and now we could talk about vantage point, you know, not try to occupy the high vantage point of, of theory of a kind of orderly bird's eye view when that didn't feel like the reality that I was living with. Um, and so that's part of what those those experiences are there to do. Um, and they're also there to be honest about what I think thinking is really like for me, whether this is what thinking is like for other people, I don't know, which is that it, it involves using metaphors from tactile daily experience in order to comprehend abstract thought. And most of my academic writing, I edit that stuff out, you know, and in this book, I didn't edit it out. And so I, I wanted to talk about that, those the the um, experiences of moving matter around in the world that actually allow me to understand what what thinking is um, and and maybe that's idiosyncratic but it's at any rate the way that it is for me um, so so yeah that's 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 most of the answer and then there's maybe one final little thing which is worth saying which is that I really was troubled in the writing of this book um, by the question of um, like sort of accidental rhetorical effects of self-exculpation. So I think that by writing from a position of critique, depending on your own subject position to begin with, mine is that I'm white and um, wealthy and American, you know, none of those things um, really um, sort of conducive to critique from below. And, and so for me, at least, if I occupy the rhetorical position of critique, it's like I'm sort of even if I don't mean to, setting myself aside from all of the forms of power that I'm complicit with. And I couldn't figure out a way around that. You know, it seemed to me that every time I tried to write from that perspective, I was saying, you know, white people, but not me. Even if I didn't say those words, it had that effect. And so I, I wrote in a personal voice and about my children and about my garden and stuff like that in order that I could always be located, you know? And, and so in order that my class position could be located, but without me saying as a white middle class or a wealthy person, I, because as soon as you do that, you seem to have excused yourself on some level. It's like, 
as a self-aware white person, I do you know what I mean. So I wanted to find a way to not do that. And that's that's part of what those little experiences are doing there too. And I don't know if it's a complete success. That's that's in the hands of the reader in a way to decide how well that subject position worked and what what forms of self-exculpation may still be there. But I will say that it was a major preoccupation of the writing. It drove a lot of decisions of the book, and, and this is one of them. Yeah, I'm I'm quite, you know, um, let me latch on to that, uh, what you said about self-exculpation and also, um, you know, the negotiating of the confessional self um, in, in the essay because, and I don't know if this is a fair question or not, but I do think, um, you know, at least not just in the history of American letters, but even in the history of American letters, the personal essay has always had a lot of political responsibility, even when, um, you know, it has ostensibly tried to kind of demarket, um, you know, very personal self. Um, so, um, so my original way to ask this question to you was, how would you say on not knowing approaches the state of the personal essay? in 2022, but that seems a little too much. Uh, so you can, you know, choose to answer that question, or I can also ask you, you know, what, what other essayists do you feel a kinship with maybe uh, in the present time? Tell me the last part, I think you cut out for just one second. What other essayists I... Oh, um, I was going to ask, you know, given the question was about the state of the personal essay right now, uh, my question was, you know, which other essayist um, or, you know, essay writer you feel a kinship with as an author? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the, the state of the personal essay is a question that interests me. I, I haven't done the sort of scholarly work that one would need to do to answer that question well, at least that I feel I would need to do to answer that question well. But, but the one thing that I would say about it is that as far, the far, as, far as I've gotten into that question is, is to become cautious about um, bounding the personal essay more narrowly than the first person voice. So, you know, there are all kinds of first person forms in the history of the essay that don't involve um, the thematics that at least in writing that's skeptical of a personal essay tend to be um, present, like thematics of confession, mostly um, sometimes further confession of trauma, um, sometimes further like monetization of the self or a neoliberal self. Um, there's also the first person essay of like someone like um, Charles Lamb, you know, in the Victorian period who, who writes in the first person, but the, the sort of, um, confession of trauma is really nowhere to be found. You know, the monetization of Charles Lamb is nowhere to be found. This is a different historical moment, so I don't have access to that same mode. But um, but I, I do still think that caution is warranted about whether the first person is always there to confess just because that pronoun is present. And I'm sure that thinkers about the personal essay are already cautious in the, this way. I just mention it for purposes of this conversation. So what I wanted from the first person, and, and I don't know to what extent this is always what other people writing the personal essay may want, um, but what I wanted from the, from the first person was really not to give an account of myself and therefore there isn't a narrative of my life across the book. I tried to be quite sparing about that. I, my life is very ordinary. I don't think that the narrative of my life is itself, um, you know, uh, on sort of 
narrative grounds particularly worthy of attention. What I wanted from the personal was to connect um, thinking with daily, often tactile, often affective experience. And I didn't know how to do that except with by locating the eye. The other thing I wanted from it, again, kind of from a craft perspective is I wanted to avoid um, knowingness. And I think that, that a lot of the forms that I was able to occupy that didn't involve the first person or any kind of account of myself as a single and limited person, um, a lot of the forms that I was able to occupy seemed knowing. That's not to say that always would be the case or that in the hands of a more gifted writer that would have been the case, but it seemed to be the case for me. I seemed to slip into a kind of objectivity. And so I thought um, what I wanted from the first person essay was something more like um, the familiar essay, which is like what, what we think of Lamb, for example, as writing. Um, essays who I think do this well, I mean, the, the, for me, the most... Um, the, the quickest example to come to mind is Brian Blanchfield's book, Proxies. It's a, he's a poet, but he wrote this incredible collection of essays, which are um, first-person essays, and they do involve first-person experience. And like, like some of my essays, some of that experience is traumatic or has to do with sex or whatever, like kind of the thematics that we associate with the personal essay. But I don't think that the point is um, to exercise or narrate a particular sort of sexual autobiography or a sort of psychosexual autobiography. The point is to narrate a thought and to, and, and to narrate um, reading and particularly to narrate the way that thought and reading kind of work their way into a life and, um, and, and change its character. And, and Blanchfield's um, figure for this is that he does all of his quotation from memory and then looks it up later and he puts footnotes at the end of the book about what he got wrong, but he doesn't correct it in the essays. So for example, the very first essay of the book involves him remembering with total certainty a poem that has an owl in it. And then if you look to the end of the book, he's like, there's no owl in the poem, but he leaves the owl in the essay, I think. I mean, again, like if we looked now, maybe I misremembered that, but the, but the point is who cares because that isn't, the, that isn't actually the point of the essays and neither is a narration of his particular childhood, the point of the essays is like to think with him and to occupy the room of his mind. And that's what I wanted from the first person. And I, I do think that some personal essays do that and some personal essays that isn't really their goal. Um, but I think most of the critiques of the personal essay don't, for them, that quality of personal essays is usually not very prominent, very central. And so I often feel that you know, maybe I need to use a different word than personal essay, or maybe I'm not really as a part of that debate um, in the way that the mere use of that pronoun might make me appear to be, because I don't find myself at loggerheads with much of the anti-personal essay stuff. Um, I think what I'm doing with it is a little different from what people object to in the genre. Um, yeah, but even, you know, um, what's really interesting is that even the I think the conceit of, uh, if not a cohesive, but a cohering self is very hard to resist. And so uh, th that, that's what makes uh, your work all the more interesting. But at the same time, that very fact would suggest perhaps that on not knowing um, is a project that doesn't try to be exhaustive in any way. Uh, so that leads me to ask me ask my final question, which is, do you see a continuation of this book in some form is this part of a bigger project that you have in mind? 
a good question. Um, you know, I think that um, it's part of a couple of um, clouds of thinking. You know, one is that I, at, at a, a point before the pandemic, I wanted to write a book about um, English departments that would be an anthropology. I wanted to write about like, what were the, what was sort of the, I wanted to do a participant uh, observation in the way that, it, that anthropologists do, you know, that's a methodology that a lot of fields use, but it's the anthropological version of, that in, of it that interested me. And what I wanted to do was to talk about like the role of charisma of personality in criticism um, because it seems to me that um, particularly in the scene of aesthetic judgment, which I would understand in the terms that Stanley Cavell uses for that scene, which are that um, it's a, a aesthetic judgment, expression of an aesthetic judgment is always a perlocutionary utterance, which means the question of whether it succeeds rests with the auditor. And so personality charisma could always be the things that account for it succeeding, you know, and, and in a sense that's deep within our the field of, of English. In any case, I wanted to write about that and I wanted to write about it from an ethnographic standpoint. And I was doing a bunch of courses on um, anthropology to try to um, be prepared, which was a wonderful experience. And I learned a lot. And then the pandemic came and there, there were other methodological reasons that this might not have worked, but there's a kind of um, longstanding consideration of what the role of the personal is in, in scholarship that has an ineradicable component of aesthetic judgment that is of interest to me. So one direction that this might go is writing about the personal in aesthetic judgment. Um, and I've done some drafting of something like that. Uh, and then the other direction that it would go would be that probably less thematically connected than stylistically connected. I'm interested in continuing to try to write in uh, an, an essayistic mode where there are certainly you know elements that come from my training as a scholar but the style the citational apparatus are more like what the essay would be um and i i have um a plan to write a poe book in that way a book about edgar Allan poe um and that would be sort of a different way of getting at the same question uh or or of performing an answer to the same question or performing it as a problem at least that namely that whatever my aesthetic judgments are of Poe, they come out of a biography in, in some way, not just out of a set of um, um, readings or out of um, a theoretical training. And, and I'm interested in forms of prose that make that visible, um, not out of a skepticism that forms of prose that dissemble it are not valuable. I actually still think they're just as valuable as I thought before, but I, I'm interested in writing in that other way. So those are two things that might might come come about. Who knows? Uh, we'll see what, what happens next. Well, you know, um, an ethnography of English departments is something I think our discipline needs, uh, <laughs> to be very honest. But... Uh, yeah, I do too, but I don't know if a tenured professor can capably write it. So um, probably what would be better is uh, really almost anyone else writing it. <laughs> and so, you know, and in ethnographic methodology, that really matters, you know, your positionality really matters. So, um, so yeah, I still think it's a good idea, but um, my training led me to question whether I could really be the one to do it. Well, we look forward to any and all books that come out of your pen. Thank you so much, Amri. Thank you for talking to us at High Theory. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage our social media presence. Julia Irian Martins edits our transcripts, and Owen Quinn composes our theme music. 
You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.